All right, I have to share something with you guys. Between covering these every Wednesday, these true crimes of the Bible, and some of the true crime podcasts that I listen to, I was walking my dog yesterday, and we walked through this uh, little place where there's nobody, it's kind of deserted, and I have to admit, I looked over my shoulder because I was just afraid somebody was following me. Nobody was, but that idea of true crime, you kind of look for it in places that it's not. And maybe that's sort of fitting with our story tonight, because depending on your perspective, what you see in our story tonight may or may not be considered a crime. We're going to talk about the story of Ehud tonight, and one of the main features of this story is all about left-handedness. So, who are my lefties in the uh, audience tonight in the congregation? Raise your hand if you're a lefty. It should be about 10% of you if percentages hold. And can I just say to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry of the added stress that you have to face every day living in a right-handed world. If you're a lefty, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about things like even door handles how they're set for right-handers to pull the door rather than left-handers. Scissors, anybody ever tried to use a right-handed scissors if you're left-handed? Or even spiral notebooks where the spirals are on the notebook is not good for a lefty. Do you remember the desks? Maybe you had these in high school, the desks where the entire part of the desk was on the right-hand side for writing, and if you're a lefty, you actually had to lean over the desk and write that way. Or even the cup holder in your car, if you're left-handed, that's an unnatural place to put your drink. I don't know. Supposedly, it adds some stress to left-handers' life. So, so to those of you that are left-handed, I'm sorry. Now, did you know this, that actually the percentage of left-handers in our world is increasing? Not, not by a large margin, but by a little bit. And, and most people attribute that to this one factor, being left-handed is not looked down upon or looked at as being quite so strange as it was not too many years ago. I actually had a friend in grade school whose parents tied his left hand behind his back because they didn't want him to be left-handed. They were teaching him to use his right hand. That wasn't uncommon. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take you all the way back to the Roman days and the Latin language. And some of you who studied Latin might even know this. That Latin for being left or left-handed is the word sinistra, which is where we get our English word sinister from. It was actually looked at as being sort of off or even evil. And certainly that's not the case with left-handedness today. But in the story of Ehud and the, in Judges chapter 3 tonight, it's all about how God delivered the people of Israel through a man who used his left hand. Hand. Before we get started, I, I want to just walk you through a little bit of, a, of an overview of the book of Judges because it'll help us with what we're going to read tonight. So in the book of Judges, we have this, this period in the history of the people of Israel in which, according to chapter 2, everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And so because of this disobedience, a lot of idolatry, false idols that are being worshipped by Israel, there's this pattern, a cycle that keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, in the, ch the chapters of the book of Judges, we're introduced to 12 different judges that make this cycle seven different times. And here's the cycle. And I apologize, as a pastor, we seem to fall in love with alliteration from time to time. 
So this is good memory hitch for me to talk about rebellion, repression, repentance, and rescue. If you can see the little notes on the, on the screen, the rebellion is simply this. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. The repression, Israel's enslaved. The repentance, Israel cries out to the Lord and the rescue. God raises a judge and Israel is delivered and they come back to serving the Lord again. Maybe one other note about judges. I think our first thought when we hear the word judge is somebody who maybe holds a gavel and, and wears a black robe. And certainly the judges did dispense justice, but they were a little bit more like deliverers or warriors that often led people into battle. As we get into the story of Ehud, we are in the second cycle of the cycles of the judges in Judges chapter 3. Let's kind of set up the, the crime that's about to happen in verses 12 to 15. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. I'm going to leave it up there just for a second because I want you just to see it. You see all four of those R words that I gave you before in the beginning of this, of this section in Judges chapter 3. It starts with Israel doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the rebellion. They fall into sin, and so God hands them over. The repression, he hands them over to a king of Moab by the name of Eglon. And they're subject to Eglon for 18 years. Now, I think sometimes we read numbers in the Bible and we just don't let it register 18 years. For some of you here, that's almost your whole life. Now, just to show you how much older I am than you, that's like a third of my life. But for you, it's almost your whole life. 18 years they were subject to King Eglon of Moab. And then the repentance. They cried out to God. And God provided. He provided the deliverer, and this is the rescue that God provided. This time he did it through a man named Ehud. And the Bible identifies him as a lefty. But here's a little pun. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And maybe some of you know that the word Benjamin actually means son of my right hand. And so we got a left-handed guy from the right-handed tribe, I suppose you could say. The question is, what does it mean that he's left-handed? Because the original Hebrew expression to be left-handed just means that he's limited in the use of his right hand. Does that mean he's a full lefty or does it mean that there's something wrong with his right hand that he can't use it? In the end, whichever possibility doesn't really matter because God's going to bring deliverance through this lefty. It allowed Ehud to do something that maybe was unexpected. Let's see what it is as the story goes on. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. 
The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. All right, we got to talk a little bit about this ruse that, that maybe Ehud was able to pull off and, and exactly why it happened. Really, we ultimately have to credit it to God. But, but putting it in human terms, what Ehud did is he made this double-edged sword. We're told it's about a cubit long. Maybe you remember from studying Noah's Ark that was built in cubits, measured in cubits, that a cubit spans from about the tips of the fingers to the elbow somewhere between about 18 and 20 inches. So I want you to picture that Ehud, who can't use his right hand very well or is left-handed, straps this 20-inch double-edged sword to his right thigh. Okay? Now, I don't know. I'm, I know I'm not tall. But I'm going to guess if I had something strapped to my right thigh that was 20 inches long, I would have a little trouble bending my knee. And so maybe I would limp a little bit as I was dragging that sword with me. And then someone who couldn't use his right hand and was limping might have appeared weak to King Eglin and to those who were surrounding him because when he's there by himself, they don't even think to check if he has any weapons. Or maybe because they just assumed people who were right-handed carried their sword on the left side, maybe they even did a little bit of a check and didn't see any weapons. Whatever the case... Ehud was able to get up close and personal with King Eglin, and it was unexpected. He didn't seem to be someone who would be able to carry out this execution of the king. But he tells him he's got a secret message for him from God, and Eglin wants to hear what it is. And as he's leaning forward, Ehud draws his sword from his right side with the left hand, plunges it into the king's enormous belly. I mean, you're talking an 18 to 20 inch sword and we're told that the fat engulfed the entire sword. It perforated his bowels, discharged his bowels and while that was all going on, Ehud locks the doors and he escapes off the balcony. So here's the question, where's the crime? Again, don't you think it's a matter of perspective? So, so the crime to the people of Moab is that their king was just assassinated by this weakling, at least according to what they may have thought. But to those in Israel, this was God. This was God delivering them from the oppression that the king of Moab, Moab had brought for the previous 18 years. Maybe it's a good time to just sort of take a step back and, and remind ourselves that things aren't always as black and white in the Bible as we'd like them to be. And while God delivered people in all kinds of different ways in the Old Testament, he sometimes used things like what Ehud did to bring peace and rest to Israel. I don't know how you feel about it, but every time I read this story, I think it's kind of like a made-for-Netflix movie or something like that. I mean, you get... 
the underdog, the guy who doesn't look like much, the guy who's got things wrong because he's left-handed or maybe can't use his right hand, and yet he's the one who slays the king and wins the victory for Israel. But in the movies, it doesn't really happen. And yet God used this real event in history to change the course of the, event, of, of the history for the people of Israel. Let's look at the aftermath briefly, verses 24 to 26 and then verse 30. After he, that's Ehud, had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. That day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. Can you picture the embarrassing scene a little bit? So Ehud locks the doors and escapes and the servants come back and, well, remember the king's bowels had been perforated. And so all they can react to is the smell that's coming from inside the room. And they just assume that the king is having a private moment and they wait, and they wait, and while they're waiting, Ehud escapes. He gets away, and when they finally come into the room, they find that their king is dead. That gives Ehud a chance to rally the troops, to bring the army of Israel together, and they win a victory over Moab, Moab and God gives them peace for the next 80 years. Maybe it's easy to question, well, why did God do these things? Why did he let a left-handed man have a secret message for the king and, and stab him in the belly? Maybe it's better, rather than questioning God's methods, to marvel. To marvel at the ways and the lengths that God goes to to deliver his people. Remember, at the heart of all of this is one thing and one thing only. God's desire to fulfill a promise that he made to that nation, the nation of Israel that he would bring a savior through the descendants of the Israelites. As I think about that, I, I think about our own lives and, and, and I think about what God did to preserve that promise in the Old Testament, how he still does that today. Because the book of, the, book of Judges, it really contains a warning for us. I think it's safe to say that everyone sitting in here tonight and those of us standing in the front as well are guilty. Guilty of pursuing other things, other gods, maybe not the same gods that the people of Israel were pursuing. But how about the gods of, of career, the gods of money, the gods of comfort, entertainment, ourselves? How easy it is to live life in terms of me and kind of lose sight of what God wants. That pursuit should take us away from God forever. But isn't this amazing? The same God who went to great lengths to deliver the people of Israel pursues you and pursues me. And he uses the sweet message of the gospel and forgiveness in Jesus to draw us back to him and to remind us that we have peace and rest, not just for this life, but for an eternal life with him. Two takeaways tonight for you. Oops, there was a little more alliteration, sorry. Number one, God remains faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. Paul wrote this way, to, he wrote it this way to Timothy in the second epistle. If we are faithless, 
He remains faithful, for God cannot disown himself. Just let that sink in a little bit. God's promises will stand even though we fall. And that's God's promise to you and to me. And that's number two. God can use even one person to bring about his deliverance. In this case, he used Ehud. Paul wrote this in the letter to the Romans. By one man, the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of one man, many were made righteous. And you know who that one man is. That one man is the ultimate deliverer, Jesus. The one who took on Satan for us. The one who defeated sin and death. The one who assures you that you are rescued. I love that picture of Jesus as you read through the judges. Every time God raises up one of those deliverers, it's another picture of the deliverance that God has given you and me through Jesus. And I think about Jesus and his left hand and his right hand, both of which were willing to take nails for you and me. I think about the sword that that pierced Jesus' side to show that he had given up his life for us. And then how Jesus showed those hands and his feet and his side to his disciples after he rose from the dead to guarantee that we are rescued, that our sins are gone forever. That's the joy that you and I have. The promise of rescue, of peace and rest, and, and not just for a period of time in this life, but for an eternity with him. Amen. I think many of you know that we have some neighbors right across the street to the Kabad house, which uh, a lot of people, obviously, who have ties to Israel. If you know a little bit what's going on in the news, you know there's a, a war between Hamas and Israel. And I don't want this to be a political statement or anything like that. I just want to pray for the peace uh, in that part of the world and, and for the safety of those who uh, have been taken and for uh, God's love to be poured out on the families who have lost loved ones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you have rescued us from sin and from death and from the power of the devil. You have sent us the deliverer that we need, Jesus our Savior. And because of him, our sins are gone and, and life with you is ours. The peace and rest of eternity is something that we have right now and something we'll experience in full when you take us to be with you. But you know, Lord, that there's peace and unrest in our world, especially as it re in regard to Israel and uh, the fight that they have against Hamas. We ask you, Lord, to bring peace to that region. Allow the, allow the fighting to come to an end so that more innocent lives are not lost. To the families who have lost loved ones, to our friends across the street who uh, may be uh, a little bit feared, af afraid tonight and anxious about what's happening, uh, we ask you to bring peace to those families as well. Remind them, Lord, that, that you have all things in your hands and we ask you, Lord, to, to end that fighting soon. To our students, we ask you to continue to bless them in their studies and, and all the things that they have going on. Watch over them, give them rest and peace from their labors, uh, but most of all, remind them that, that you go with them and you're carrying them to their eternity with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, amen.